Hello and welcome to Bunker's Cable. I am Jordan. And I'm Reagan. We host this bi-weekly podcast from the Matthew B. Ridgway Center for International Security Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The core mission of the Ridgway Center is to contribute to the intellectual and policy debates about the world's most pressing issues in international security studies. The Ridgway Center focuses on a diverse range of challenges to international security, including the spread of international terrorism, counterinsurgency, the rise of transnational organized crime, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, emergent technologies, and other critical issues faced by policymakers and the United States Army. Named after the man best remembered for salvaging the United Nations efforts during the Korean War as the Commander-in-Chief of the United Nations troops, General Matthew Bunker Ridgway was also the Chief of Staff for the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, and of course, the inspiration behind the name, Bunker's Cable. Each episode, we will delve into a topic within international security, speaking to professors about their research, commenting on current events, and discussing policy options. We want to highlight academic research while connecting the findings to current events. Our goal is to make today's research accessible to you. Today, we would like to welcome Dr. Michael Kenny and Dr. Julie Chernoff Huang to Bunker's Cable to discuss their article on Islamist extremist disengagement. Dr. Michael Kenny is the current Wesley W. Posvar Chair in International Security Studies, Director of the Matthew B. Ridgway Center, and Professor of International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. He received his PhD in political science from the University of Florida and has held postdoctoral fellowships at Stanford University and the University of Southern California. Kenny teaches and conducts research on high risk activism and political violence, organizational theory and social network analysis and ethnography and qualitative research. He is the author of The Islamic State in Britain, Radicalization and Resilience in an Activist Network which received the 2019 Best Book Award from the Political Networks section of the American Political Science Association. He also authored Fran Pablo Tsosama, Trafficking and Terrorist Networks, Government Bureaucracies and Competitive Adaptation. Kenny's work on terrorism, Islamic militancy, and transnational organized crime has appeared in the Journal of Conflict Resolution, Political Psychology, Survival, Orbis, Global Crime, Studies in Conflict and Terrorism, terrorism and political violence and other publications. He is currently finishing an oral history of an outlawed Salafi Jihadi network based in London. And Dr. Julie Chernoff-Huang is an Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Goucher College. She is the author of Why Terrorists Quit, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists, Peaceful Islamist Mobilization in the Muslim World, What Went Right, and the co-editor of Islamist Parties and Political Normalization in the Muslim World. Her articles have been published in Political Psychology, Terrorism and Political Violence, Asian Survey, Contemporary Southeast Asia, Asia Pacific Issues, Southeast Asia Research, and Nationalism and Ethnic Politics. Her new book project, Becoming Jihadis, Radicalization and Commitment in Southeast Asia, forthcoming from Oxford University Press in 2023, explores the social and emotional reasons why Indonesian and Filipino Muslims join, commit to, and take on high-risk roles in Islamist extremist groups. Their article, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Understanding how British and Indonesian extremists disengage and why they don't, compares how individuals from two different Salafi Jihadi groups disengage from high-risk activism and political violence. Drawing on original interviews, they explore the push and pull factors that influence their respondents' decisions to leave. 
They identify numerous push and pull factors that are consistent with previous research, including disagreements with group leaders over strategy, practices, educational, and employment opportunities. They also contribute to existing research by including persistent activists in their sample who do not disengage. They are here today to talk about their methodology, findings, and policy options. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you for having much. us. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much. Could either of you give us a short summary of who these two groups are, just so our audience is familiar with who they are and where they're located? Al-Muhajirun is an outlawed Salafi jihadi activist network based primarily in the United Kingdom. Uh, over the years, a number of former activists have been implicated in acts of political violence within and outside the United Kingdom. And more recently, a number um, left Britain to join the Islamic State as fighters. However, inside the United Kingdom, Al-Muhajirun has been involved overwhelmingly in um, street dawah, calling people to Islam and political protests and culturing their members with the ultimate goal of bringing the caliphate or bringing the Islamic State to Britain. Jamaa Islamiyya is, is the largest Salafi jihadi group in Indonesia. It is also one of the two most significant anti-ISIS Salafi jihadi groups in Indonesia. At their height, their, their goal is to transform Indonesia into an Islamic state, and they believe in a gradual approach to that. In the 90s, uh, in the late 90s, Jamaa Islamiyah members, a faction of Jamaa Islamiyah, was responsible for terrorist attacks, including the 2000 Christmas Eve bombings, the uh, 2002 Bali bombing, and the 2003 JW Marriott bombing, um, that faction would break away in, uh, formally in 2005. Jamal Islamiyah does believe that violence is permissible in conflict zones um, and where Muslims are under threat. All right, so we wanted to start with your methodological structure of the research. What made you choose to research these specific groups, Al-Muhajirun and Jamiat al-Samiya? Well, we wanted to um, move beyond a single case study, which both of us had done in our own work, and try to broaden the comparison to more than one group um, with the hope that this might increase, uh, however modestly, the generalizability of our findings. I was long familiar with Julie's outstanding work, including extensive field work on, on uh, Jama Islamiyah, and I saw her as a natural partner for this sort of comparative uh, case study work um, because I had done quite a bit of field work and interviews with Al Muhajirun. So it kind of grew out of that, I think. I would agree. Um, and I, you and I, I think. We had been talking for a few years yeah. about partnering because we kept being put on panels together and we found certain commonalities and we kept saying, wouldn't it be great to write a paper together? And because we kept finding these points of convergence. 
Absolutely, especially around issues like disengagement, the, yes. uh, the topic of the subject of this paper, definitely. That's really wonderful. I'm glad you two found a way to make it work so you could collaborate. Now, I noticed that your research is different than others on similar topics. Can you talk about your methodological motivation for including both respondents that left and respondents that stayed? Okay, I would say that one thing, and, and this is kind of skipping ahead a little, one thing that, uh, that Dr. Kenny and I both did was that we did these iterated interviews. And so we kept going back to the same people over and over and over again. And we built trust with those people. And so in the end, we both had these data sets of people who had stayed and people who had left and people who had been somewhere in the middle. And the reason why you want to look at those who stayed, those who remained in, the persisters, and those who disengaged in various ways is that you can never be entirely sure that someone is disengaging for the reasons you think, unless you can see well, what happened to those who stayed? What factors are missing with those who stayed that aren't with those who remain, uh, who left? And that was the exciting thing is that what we found was that there were a lot of the same factors in both types of people, persisters, disengagers. They both experienced disillusionment. They both experienced burnout. But in the end, the factor that was really the linchpin was that those who disengaged had constructed an alternative so, uh, social network of family, friends, and mentors. Those who stayed in had not. They might have some supportive friends, but it was a shallower friendship. They didn't have an alternative social network. And that finding was so exciting for me because it, it went along with what uh, I found in my terrorists quite about the Indonesians. So it was very interesting for me to see that that also um, worked for uh, members of Al Muhajirun, half a planet. That is a very interesting finding. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that. You also mentioned that while conducting interviews, you engaged in active non judgmental listening in order to minimize biases. What steps did you take to make sure you were able to make that happen? Were there any specific biases that you held that were hard to push aside in order to conduct the interview well? Absolutely, that's a great question. I think um, in the course of conducting the interviews, it was very important for us to use neutral body language and facial expressions, um, you know, avoid, avoid conveying any sort of uh, disparagement of our respondents, but always treat people uh, respectfully as, as we would want to be treated in any social interaction with another human being. Um, in my own case, uh, sometimes my respondents would tell me things that were deliberately provocative. They were trying to assess me a little bit and see whether I would take the bait. Uh, so for example, um, every once in a while, somebody would tell me some outrageous remark like, oh, oh you know, bestiality is, is very widely practiced in the United States. You know, they were trying to um, elicit an emotional response from me and kind of get, get me off my game. So, you know, avoiding taking the bait 
on those rare occasions, treating respondents respectfully and maintaining this attitude that um, I wasn't there to judge my respondents, but to learn from them. And then in terms of my own biases, um, again, speaking for myself, I'm not necessarily the most religious person. And, and yet here I was interviewing people who self-identified as, as very religious and just, you know, keeping um, that in mind and, uh, you know, avoiding uh, thinking to myself, well, this person is, you know, has really strange beliefs. I could never see it. So just kind of um, always being aware of those potential biases in their uh, ability to, to impact my ability to listen to what I was hearing and to interpret what they were telling me. So I'm sure there are many more differences just besides you not being religious, them being very religious. And speaking of being in a different culture, did you find that regional culture played a decisive role in determining which push or pull factors contributed to the decisions to disengage? I would say for the subset of people that we were dealing with in the article, I, I did not find um, I can speak to that. There are, in my broader research, region-specific and context-specific. But what we found in the article was that in the Jamaslamia group and the Al-Muhajirun group, even though one was in the UK, in a majority non-Muslim society, and one was in Indonesia, in a majority Muslim society, they all experienced disillusionment. They all experienced priority shifts. Indonesians didn't experience burnout as much because within Jamaz Lamia, one can go inactive. They can take a step back, not accept duties and responsibilities, but they still retain an identity. They can still make use of Jamaz Lamia schools. So they can kind of step down without stepping out. And so I don't know if you could call that region specific. There both had that experience of the alternative social network. So I don't think there were very specific factors that were regionally based apart from that small thing about, that small aspect with burnout. Mike? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think Julie makes an important point. Although we were looking at two groups, literally located at the antipodes of the, the Muslim world, there were so many similarities uh, between them, especially when you think about the differences in regional culture. And so that just kind of reminds me when you dig deep into specific groups and you're conducting interviews with individuals, even when these individual, individuals are literally located on the other side of the world and grew up in different cultures, um, when it comes to looking at push and pull factors that influenced or not their decision to leave, um, there was often more similarities. But as Julie also says, there were some important differences too. So go, you kind of already touched on this, but the persisters and the disengagers both experienced these push and pull factors. Specifically, how did the persistent activists overcome those individual push and pull factors? So um, with respect to the Al-Muhajirun 
a lot of times it came down to just their commitment to the ideology and their commitment to the leader. Uh, Al-Muhajirun was led by a very charismatic individual and his number two. And a number of the persisters had very kind of deep connections to, to the leadership. And they were also true believers in the sense that they, they really believed um, what they were you know, being taught. They, they internalized these beliefs. And even when they, they grew older and, and they got married and they began to have children, although personal circumstances of their lives changed, it never changed their sense of priority to the extent that they were like, well, now I'm gonna put my activism aside. That was a key difference. The disengagers went through a similar process of, of just you know, getting a little older, changes in their lives. But for them, they were less committed to the leadership, less committed to the ideology. And so those changes ended up being more profound um, and actually contributed to their disillusionment. And I would say for Jamaa Islamiyah, a lot of the persisters had family in the group or they had married into it. So they had overlapping social ties where their whole family was in the group, their parents were in the group or their siblings were in the group. And so because of that, it was kinship ties that bind. All of those different factors are very interesting to hear about. Um, now, did you find that either push factors or pull factors had more of an influence on the respondents or was it about equal? Well, I never really thought of it as, I mean, obviously in the back of my mind, trying to identify what factors are most important, but it didn't really play out like that in, in the research. It was more like um, the push factors kind of set the table for individuals getting ready to, to leave. Um, and after individuals had experienced push factors like becoming disillusioned with their activism or becoming disillusioned in JI's case with, with specific decisions to engage in bombings that were really, as Julie highlights, quite controversial on the larger network. So, so these sorts of disagreements were quite common and they help people begin to question, you know, what am I doing here? But then you, you also had the influence of poll factors. Um, you know, people perhaps be meeting new people through education or, um, you know, other meaningful social relationships. And those poll factors especially the alternative social network of friends and significant others who, who help them build an identity outside their militant groups. These were uh, extremely important as, as well. I agree in part with Mike about, I love that image, the, that the push factors are how the table is set. I do, and I would give a little more salience, however, to pull factors, because I do think they are the linchpin of successful disengagement and successful reintegration. And I would also say that because they are the factors that are part of the narratives for the disengagers and not part of the narratives for the persisters, 
they, they do deserve at, at least a little more weight. Yeah, that's one of the key findings in this paper. Um, it's a, and it reflects our methodological contribution because our sample, as Julie highlighted earlier, includes both people who left and people who stayed were allowed to identify causal factors um, with a little more uh, confidence, I think. And one key factor that we identify is the importance of this pull factor, the alternative social network. So that's arguably the most important finding from the paper, I think. So looking at what you found from your study, the research style of it was different, who you included in your research structure was different. What would you, or what do you think future studies should look for or look like considering yours was a little bit different as well? Well, I think just real quickly, I think what future research needs to do is to build on this sort of work by including both persisters and disengagers in their studies of disengagement. As Julie highlighted before, if your sample does not include both, how do you know that the factors you're identifying as causally important in a sample of disengagers also doesn't apply to people who stayed? You, you really have no way of knowing. And in fact, the early literature on disengagement studies highlights the importance of disillusionment. And one of the important contributions of this study is saying, well, yeah, disillusionment is important, but it's not sufficient. You need more than that. And we only understood that when we were able to look at people who didn't leave, who stayed, and to our surprise, had actually experienced disillusionment, but they stayed, they never left. I would love to see more studies that use the methods that we used of the iterated interviews, where it takes time and you can't do it during COVID, but in a post-COVID research environment, to be able to go interview the same people over and over again, over a period of years. So then you can also see, well, disillusionment might come first. Five years from now, they might disengage. You can also see the persisters and the disengagers, but you've been talking to them for long enough that they are giving you more authentic answers because they trust you. And I think we can't under, we can't overstate how important that aspect was to our ability to write this and to our ability to write the Islamic State in Britain and why terrorists quit. All, both of us relied on these methods and these methods were very successful in helping bring about very innovative cutting edge findings that are replicable, that other scholars could go and use these methods and use these methodological frameworks and see, are you also finding the importance of alternative social networks when you're looking at 
um, disengaging members of the FARC in Colombia? Well, are you also finding alternative social networks when you were looking at disengaging members of Lashkar-e-Taiba in Pakistan, et cetera? So do you think comparisons can be drawn between the Salafi jihadist groups and other extremist groups? When it comes to disengagement, I think that there are some intriguing comparisons that could be made. That these push and pull factors that we talk about in this article, um, many of them have been identified in other research, including research focused on white supremacists and violent far-right extremists. So um, yeah, in fact, I do believe that you can make comparisons between um, people who leave Jamaa Islamiyah and people who leave Al-Muhajirun and um, people who leave uh, the Proud Boys or, or militia groups. I do think that there are some relevant comparisons to be made there. Absolutely, both in the leaving uh, and incidentally in the journey. You make a really good point, knowing that we need to have disengagers and persisters be included in the research. And terrorists is such a hot button topic today. So what do you wish to be done with your findings in the policy world? I think one of the most important policy implications from this paper, from our comparative analysis of Al-Muhajirun and Jamaa Islamiya, is the importance of alternative social networks in facilitating not just disengagement, but as Julie would stress, reintegration into society. So I, I do think that there are some policy implications that flow from that. Uh, for example, um, you know, disengagement is a process that can be facilitated by these significant relationships with family members family members potentially have a really important role. I should say family members that are not actively involved in the groups. And Jamaa Islamiya has some differences there, as Julie has highlighted. But family members that are not involved in these groups, family members that are not militants, um, can you know, be an important example of people that uh, provide these kind of meaningful social relationships that help people um, begin to build alternative social identities outside their group. Doesn't have to be family members, could be good friends, could be people you meet at school and deepen relationships there. So there's any number of, of possibilities, but the key insight there is the importance of uh, you know, alternative social networks. It's not just networks in joining these groups, Networks are also really important in facilitating disengagement. I would totally agree with that. And I think it points to the role of what disengagement programs can and cannot do. A disengagement program cannot give you an alternative social network, but a disengagement program can help you to reestablish ties with supportive family members who might be estranged from you because you alienated them in the course of your activism. And they can help facilitate counseling to rebuild those strained family ties. Another thing that programs can do is to help 
a person conceptualize a post-group life, a post-jihad life, post-group life, uh, post-extremist life? Where do you see yourself in five years? Well, how can we help you with job training? How can we help you with professional development? Now, through those mediums of job training and professional development, you can construct an alternative social network because let's say you want to go back to school for a master's degree. Now you're in a classroom. Now you're interacting with other students who are being seen as, this, as a student. You are being recognized and praised for your work as a student and you come to see yourself in a different way. That is something that the state can facilitate. But the state, I would caution, and I think Mike would agree with me. I would caution on stress in, on investing heavily in programs that try to create worldview overhaul, where we are going to try to de-radicalize this person and take their viewpoints from the extreme to the mainstream. It's too easily faked. It's hard to measure. And it's also a journey that people go through um, in their own way. On, their own time. Disengagement is about ceasing participation in an extremist group or ceasing participation in acts of violence as part of an extremist group. So it is far better to look at these narrow areas within those changing priorities, within rebuilding family ties, where there can be constructive, positive change than try to go and try to overhaul one's mind. I think that's absolutely right. You know, you can't, um, it, it's more about building trust and rapport and providing meaningful educational and employment opportunities for these people. If you try to confront them too early on the ideological side, uh, oftentimes you just push them away. They're not receptive to the message. Um, really first, you have to build the trust, build the rapport, give people with meaningful, provide them with meaningful opportunities. So as Julie says, they can build a life outside their groups. That's a really important policy implication because I can tell you uh, in the UK, they often make it harder, uh, they being the government, sometimes makes it harder for, for people uh, to have these sorts of meaningful employment and educational opportunities, uh, particularly in the case of persistent activists that have been imprisoned for crimes related to their activism. They come out of prison and they have very few options, meaningful options available to them. And sometimes the government actually uh, can make it harder for them by, by pressuring them, by calling prospective employers and letting them know, oh, do you know this person that you're interested in hiring? You know who this person is? And it, it doesn't make it any easier for those people who are seeking to build, uh, to, to move on with their lives. And I think you two have said it perfect. This is a, this is a long-term commitment. This is something that you know, society has to be bought into as well and, you know, kind of welcome these people once and if they do disengage so that they can build those alternate social um, interactions. And yes, um, 
And this is not something that's going to happen overnight. This is a, a long-term commitment and is, is going to be difficult. And I think that we want a quick solution to terrorism and extremism. And it's just not something that's going to happen as quickly as maybe everyone would like to see it happen, but it's doable. It's just very complicated as you've pointed out. And there's many aspects and influences that can cause these people to stay or cause these people to leave and not go back. Thank you both for being here today. It was really, really interesting to hear further insights on your research. So thank you, Dr. Kenny, and thank you, Dr. Chernoff Wong. Thank you guys again for the opportunity. Um, it's always great to see my friend and colleague, Julie, and I'm really excited about her, her forthcoming book with Oxford University Press. And, uh, and, and thank you to, to Reagan and Jordan for, uh, for doing a great job in getting our podcast series up and running again. Really looking forward to seeing how this works out. Thank you very much, Mike, for, for suggesting this. And to Reagan and Jordan, thank you so much for putting this together. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you coming to talk about your findings and your work.